The Start On Demand. Hey, it's Brett. It's the Wednesday edition of the podcast for The Start with Mackling, McGarry, and McNabb. Lots to share with you today, including a students' union in Manchester. They want, no, they have banned clapping at their events, and they've replaced it with jazz hands. We're going to tell you why. It's been one year since the Misericordia Urgent Care shut down and the Victoria Hospital ER became an urgent care. So we're going to check with the head of the WRHA to find out how's it going so far. Richard Cloutier joins us once again to talk about meth, and he's going to tell us about some pharmacies that are being robbed so that the robbers can take what they steal and try to sell it so that they can get their hands on meth. Milt Stiegel joins us in studio to talk about, one, how stylish he is, and two, the HSC Millionaire Lottery. More on meth as well. Loren McNabb had an opportunity to go to Brandon and speak with the Bear Clan there and find out that it's not just a crisis here in Winnipeg, but it is also happening elsewhere in southern Manitoba. A Winnipeg flower empire, Calia Flowers, started just two years ago and already is about to crack the million-dollar mark. We're going to speak to the founder of Calia, Catherine Matricki. And finally, Winnipeg is bestowed a cool award by an international body regarding our city's many great festivals. Mackling McGarry McNabb, Jeff Braun is here. Cam Poitras is here in for Kelly Moore. And does this sound give you anxiety? Would this give your one of your boys anxiety, Greg? Tiny bit. Yeah. yeah, a tiny bit. Well, here's the thing. Across the pond at the University of Manchester, the students' union has said no to clapping. Here's why. The future. Imagine a world without clapping. Churchill's speeches would have been met with silence. There'd be none of this, none of that, certainly none of that. Steve Reich's clapping music would be silenced, as would the applause after it. It's a world that's already arrived in Manchester, at least at student union meetings, where clapping has now been banned. It can trigger issues for students who have autism, sensory issues and deafness. Um, and it can discourage them from being present at those events. The alternative? British Sign Language clapping, which visually looks like this. People have more informally heard it referred to as jazz hands, but that is the official British Sign Language version of clapping. Manchester isn't the first to ban clapping. Last year, the National Union of Students banned it, saying it could trigger clap-based anxiety. Critics say this generation of students is simply oversensitive. These students were broadly supportive of the change. Seems all right, not hurting anyone to not clap. Don't they do that in uh, Parliament? Like, don't, they don't clap, do they? No, they don't clap in Parliament, or they're not supposed to, and when they do, they get told off. The, the convention that we don't clap in this chamber is very, very, very long-established. It remains one of the world's noisiest debating chambers. 
Liam, a chemistry student from Liverpool, lives with a hearing difficulty. He doesn't mind clapping. Do you know of other people who've got hearing difficulties who it would bother? Uh, I don't personally, so I don't know very other many students who have sort of the same issues. So you kind of wonder who this is for then? Well, a little bit, yeah, I suppose, yeah. But, I mean, if there are those who do experience those problems and would like that, I think it'd be fine to implement it as a policy. And what about blind students who can hear clapping but can't see waving? Are they not being discriminated against? Um, I think that that is it, it's a very important issue that you raise. I think that where we are at the moment um, in this conversation, um, this is the solution that we currently have. The student newspaper has been sounding opinion. To be honest, everyone I've spoken to has found it quite ridiculous. A bit of an epitome of the stereotype of student politics, how we try to go out of our way to be inclusive end up sometimes going the other way. The students would like to see a clapping ban in our national politics, but could our politicians live without it? Stuart Flinders, BBC Northwest Tonight, Manchester. Jeff Braun, you're good at snap reactions. Do you have one to this? It was dumb. <laughs> there it is. <laughs> if you, I mean, I, I've, well, I, I understand that some people have issues with clapping or whatever, but how are you, it's fine and you can ban it at school, but how are you supposed to live the rest of your life without ever hearing clapping? It's just not going to happen. There's no way, unless you never, ever put yourself in a room with three or more people, you'll I, hear a clapping at I a birthday party, a movie, a concert, something. I think about how the Blue Bombers, what was that, five or six years ago? Remember when they tried to ban... Um, the beer snake. Cowbells. And the cowbells, and yes. And the outrage <laughs> over the banning of a cowbell. And then, you know, you take something away from from like daily life for some people, especially on a campus, right? Like all the different sports that be going on, parades, walks, like what have you. Clapping seems to be a pretty daily norm on any university campus. Yeah, Cam, could you imagine going to a, a sportsing event without <laughs> applause? No, I couldn't. Um, you know, I, I really agree with what that one uh, student said where this kind of works backwards. Um, it's it's kind of trying to be way too inclusive of everybody, and at the same time, it's kind of making everybody kind of shake their heads as to, you know, what what's this really for? Is this, is this really an issue that needs to be tackled? I'm sure there's bigger issues on student campuses than if somebody's clapping or not, right? Well, no, Greg, for those, though, with with genuine anxiety when it comes to that kind of noise, what do you think about that? Yeah, well, you know, Brent, Brendan doesn't have anxiety, but it, it does bother him. And, and when I take him to the Jets games and the things get a little loud, he does cover his ears. And even at home, and I don't know if it's just because it's his brother doing it, but I, I've noticed that he has a, a genuine sensitivity to certain types of noises. He doesn't like scratching sounds. And, and even when you just rub your hands together, it it, it has a vis he has a visceral reaction to those things but the last thing i would do is tell him that uh, it's the rest of the world's problem like he's gonna have to sort it out and if it means you've got to get him some earplugs when we go to games and that sort of thing and i know his brother does that sometimes just to anger him and work him up i get that uh but we can in my opinion you can only protect and so many people from so many things before it becomes incredibly onerous on well, yeah. everyone else. And like the in the piece there, the guy made the point, as soon as you ban clapping, then you're, you're screwing over the blind people because if everyone's just doing jazz hands, they can't see that. They don't know what's going on. They don't know if everyone's happy or sad about whatever's just happened and whatever gathering that is. I would like to weird. see it, though. I would like to see that, though, with the jazz hands. Yeah. Well, the silence that would come yeah. to that. Score a touchdown and everyone just... <laughs> it would look interesting. dead silent. Well, they didn't say you can't cheer. You can yeah, still you cheer. Can yell. Yell and scream. But how long but before clapping. we take that away? 
Yeah. Because that's in the wrong octave. That's just for clapping with your mouth. I now, there was a good point in that. Like, first of all, did they consult any groups with this? Is there um, an autism group? They raised that as an issue. Like, who came forward? Did someone say this is actually a big problem for a certain percentage of the population? And therefore, it's based on some some facts and statistics. That might be one thing. But the one the part I liked in that story was, let's reform behavior in parliaments. I'm all for that. Like, take away clapping, <laughs> take away shouting, take well, away name calling. Yeah, and, but, the, you know, yeah, that you've seen some well, they pretty childish bang behavior. The table. Oh, yes, absolutely. They bang the table. That's mandatory. Well, and it's the thing with this students' union thing. It's not just the clapping. They want people to quietly use the British sign language clap, which is, as we know, is jazz hands. They don't want people cheering either. They just want, uh, you know, the, the hands to go up quietly. I, I remember when I was a little kid, my parents took me to fireworks, and they terrified me. The noises mm-hmm. were, like, to the point where I had to go to the car and plug my ears. But as you pointed, you used the word sorted out. I had to sort that out because there is noise everywhere in the world. And if there's a noise that scares you, what, what's the alternative? Just hide in a bubble for the rest of your life? I don't know. I, I sort of feel I, like I try to be open-minded and, and as inclusive as I can. But to me, this seems like it's maybe going a little bit too far. What's the punishment if you do clap, like, on this campus? Like, where, you know, tie like, your hands behind your back. <laughs> like, is there a bylaw officer? Like, I'm just walking around handing out tickets for anyone who dares. Sentenced to mittens for the rest of the year. (laughs) And and then what happens when the judge makes his decision with the gavel? Uh, Oh, oh, I can't can't do that. (laughs) Well, you can let us know what you think. 204-780-6868. And uh, Cam, before we let you go here, do you have maybe a suggestion for an alternative to not clapping or jazz hands? Like, is there, what about like, isn't whistling a form of booing in other parts of the world? Uh, I, I think, I think so. Yeah. They, like they don't, they won't boo. They'll, uh, they'll do those, uh, the whistling, like in, like you hear in soccer games when the, when the ref makes a, a bad call, people don't agree with it. Then they'll start doing that, that whistling thing. I prefer the booing. I think it sounds better. Uh, and I think aggressive. it really drives, it really drives home the point. I feel. Unless people start hissing, that would really creep Ooh, me out. Like a group hiss. Those yeah. are vuvuzelas. That uh, can get the, banned. The, yeah, we can ban those. I can't stand those. Yeah, I see, really now you're doing that selective banning stuff. That's, that's not right. You can't do that. Now, Loren, let's start with. An anniversary in Winnipeg's hospital system. Well, that's right. One year ago this morning, the doors at Misericordia's Urgent Care Centre in Winnipeg closed, and the sign at Victoria Hospital changed from ER to Urgent Care. It's all part of that first phase of massive of this massive health care overhaul we've been talking about for some time. And, of course, it's not over yet. Lori Lamont is the Acting Chief Operating Officer with the Winnipeg Regional Health Authority and joins us in studio this morning. Good morning. Good morning. Well, for all of us, we were saying this morning, healthcare is such a deeply personal experience. And so for you, what are the benchmarks? Where, how are you measuring the success or failures of these changes so far? Well, I think that we're, we're pleased with the progress we've made so far. The changes were about really looking at how our system was um, organized and how it functioned and making changes that allowed us to reinvest in some services and to strengthen services so that they could actually provide better quality care and more timely care to people in the system. So our improvements overall on wait times in our emergency departments have been uh, very positive. But I think one of the things that often gets overlooked 
in the changes we've made are the investments we've made in services for older adults or people with chronic illnesses. We know that's a growing part of our population, and so investments in subacute care at at, uh, Victoria Hospital, and we'll be making more of those, the investments in new home care programming as well, has meant that we have record low numbers of people in our hospital beds waiting for long-term care. It's better for the people, and it's certainly better for the system. Well, and I can tell you from personal experience, uh, my my grandmother, like kind of two ends of the spectrum, spent three months being evaluated at Deer Lodge, and then when they determined that she had been shortlisted and it would be determined that she'd go to a personal care home, she waited for a little bit, but then when she made a request to move somewhere else, it happened very quickly. So I've seen sort of both sides based on uh, the time of the year, and so as Loren mentioned, I think it's all a very personal experience But those metrics and those numbers are very important, I think, in terms of the public understanding that the changes are are having an effect. So what are those numbers? And and that short period that I waited three months ago for a move versus that longer period that we waited in December to get an assignment of a personal care home in the first place, uh, diametrically opposite in our experience. Correct. Um, So uh, prior to us making some of the changes and being able to invest in some of those services, uh, we normally had somewhere around 80 people in our hospital, in our acute care beds, waiting for long-term care. Uh, Now that number since last late last fall has dropped to between 20 and 30, and we've seen it stay that way. We actually have empty capacity in our personal care home system, and so uh, that means that when uh, people have to go to those systems, they can go more quickly, Uh, but it also means that the services such as priority home or subacute programming mean that we give people a bit more time and a bit more support to hopefully be able to regain their independence and return home, which is what most people and their families actually want. It's an important part of the story when you're at the nearing your end of life or if you have a family member in that situation. But people look at this as I go to the ER a year ago, my wait time was well over averaging two two hours. What is it now? And I and I've watched that kind of zigzag up and down. There has been some gains, but there's been some losses too, depending on where you look in this year. Yeah. So it's important to recognize that wait times fluctuate day to day, month to month. Um, And so uh, we have seen some um, fluctuation in that. And you're right, some months are better than others uh, in the last year. But what we've seen overall is an ongoing downward trend from uh, being about uh, two hours uh, to being down to about 1.6, 1.5 hours. So that's um, we still have more improvement to go, but that's a bigger improvement than we've ever seen in our system. I think the other thing that we uh, need to recognize is healthcare is not a static uh, operation. There are always new things, new demands coming. So we uh, experienced our worst influenza since H1N1 last winter. And in spite of that, the, the peak in activity and the sometimes resulting in the peak in wait times did not exceed where we we had seen them in the previous year. Now, obviously, there's a partnership in terms of delivering these services. The WRHA works very closely with nurses and doctors. And so nurses union still raising the flag a little bit and saying, hey, uh, this may all be well and good, but there's still some some forced overtime issues. Are those things being sorted out? And, and where do you stand on that, Lori? 
So there are a number of things, and certainly making changes of this size uh, are disruptive and, and do have an impact on our staff. And so we have been working with the unions and with staff to try to help them adjust to those changes, but not making the changes that we believe are in the best interests of staff, of, of patients, um, would be the wrong thing to do. Uh, in terms of the overtime, we have seen um, spikes in overtime, most notably at St. Boniface Hospital, and we continue to work with St. Boniface Hospital and with the union to look at ways to address that. St. Boniface has done a tremendous amount of hiring, particularly in the maternal child area. I think it's important to recognize that the issues in maternal child have very little to do with the changes we've made in the hospitals. We didn't make a change in that area other than changing some scheduling for staff. So is it staffing though? Is it a need for more staff or better management? Because we do, it's been a recurring theme and we've even had notes about the NICU. You mentioned the the unit for the the vulnerable babies, um, concerns there, right? So do we need to hire more people? So we did uh, need to hire more people. Uh, the When St. Boniface went into their plan for uh, changing staff scheduling to make them ma- better match with the needs of patients, um, they had vacancy that they um, needed to fill, and so they've been working to do that to fill those vacancies. Um, as well, really looking at um, whether we've got the right match. We've also seen an increase in the number, about a 10% increase in the number of babies who actually need that NICU service. So unfortunately, the need to hire, to do more hiring and that peak in demand happened at the same time. Uh, We do believe that the, the hiring piece is, is complete, so they have hired the staff, but because it's a specialty area, it does take some time for those staff to fully get up to speed, and they need some extra support in the union, in the unit, to actually become, um, you know, fully capable of caring for these babies. Lori Lamont is our guest, the Acting Chief Operating Officer with the Winnipeg Regional Health Authority. Uh, any word on what the plan is for Concordia's ER? So we uh, are continuing to make the plans to shift services and make the changes, and we expect that we will uh, be uh, closing the emergency department at Concordia in June of 2019. Uh, We are pleased that we've been able to partner uh, with a local uh, physician group to provide a walk-in connected care. That means that for minor illnesses and injuries, that service will be available uh, in the neighbourhood. We don't have um, a large clinic available in that East Kildonan, um, Transcona area, so we're pleased that we were able to find uh, a way to repurpose that space. But we'll also be making other changes as to where certain surgeries are provided. We'll be moving the um, mental health services from Seven Oaks and Grace Hospital to the newly renovated units at Victoria Hospital uh, before the end of this year. So it's while the emergency departments are often the focus of what we've been talking about, it really is about redesigning and consolidating services so we can improve the quality of them. What part of that includes meth in the equation because we've been talking this week about our meth crisis in Winnipeg and across Manitoba. There was so much worry last year that the closure of ERs um, would greatly impact healthcare services. Now we have, we're hearing even more people going to ERs because of meth and we're talking about closing yet another one at Concordia. Where, where, do, where do those people go? Where do they fit in that puzzle when, when it would feel like in some cases that service, which is the ER to them, is, is gone? 
It's important to recognize that as we make changes uh, in whether a facility has an emergency department or not, we anticipate in the planning where some of that volume will go, including potentially increased activity. And we've moved physicians and nurses in terms of the hours of care, and we're making important renovations to those emergency departments to take on that additional um, service. I think uh, while we, while when we were doing this initial planning for our changes, meth was not the issue we're seeing today, um, but important in healthcare to be ready to adapt to what we're seeing. And we believe by having those consolidated services, we actually can have the right specialists, the right access to um, treatment, and in some cases, enhanced security if we have fewer places to provide that in. Uh, stretching ourselves very thin and potentially only having one or two cases coming in um, intermittently uh, make it very difficult to provide the staff training and to make sure we've got the resources in place. So we actually believe that our, uh, our new configuration of services help us to respond to some of these emerging issues in a better way, but it is certainly a concern for us. Lori Lamont, Acting Chief Operating Officer with the Winnipeg Regional Health Authority, thank you very much for joining us today. Well, one more M, just for good measure, meth. Richard Cloutier yeah. joins us live in studio once again. Richard, good morning to you, sir. Good morning, and I am magnificent. Mm, well done. Right on. Well, we've been talking a lot, and we've been hearing in the news run this morning with Jeff Braun about the impact meth is having well beyond the addicts, uh, the family members on, on crime. And, you know, you're talking about bikes being stolen, uh, cars being rifled, and all the rest. We're going to play you some audio from a pharmacist on Leela. This is Carrie Lai, just talking about... He's explained that he's been uh, robbed repeatedly. He had someone walk in with a machete and a mask in August and steal some opioids from them. But it's more than that. It, 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 here's, here's his audio now. For a individual trying to scrape up money for their next hit on, of crystal meth, they'll do whatever they can to get that amount of money. Um, it could be from shoplifting. It could be from panhandling. Uh, unfortunately, it could be from like prostitutions, um, but even to the worst case, armed robbery. And that's what you experienced? Yes, we have. And even shoplifting as well. They go after price points. So for example, if they see a product that's worth $50 on, on sale, they'd be thinking, well, if, if it's selling for $50, maybe I could get $10 for it from somewhere else. And that's how they build up their cash supplies to buy whatever they want to buy. How often are people stealing from you? Uh, you know what? I try not to think about it too much because it can be just more often than I could even account for. That was Global's Joe Scarpelli speaking with Carrie Lai, who has a pharmacy on Leela. And Richard, it really just shows you how it goes beyond just the things we're thinking about, that just an everyday business. I could understand him. You know, he had the armed robbery story about someone coming in to actually steal drugs. All right, but now we're talking about coming in to steal anything just to make a profit. I've talked to other pharmacists, another one near that area said that two of his security guards have been stabbed this year, that uh, staff are on edge, and that, yeah, he has been robbed. And it goes with the business, but it goes beyond this. In speaking with people all around the city of Winnipeg, construction sites, copper stolen, Manitoba Hydro, copper stolen. Uh, You wonder how they're fencing it, but they're getting money for it. And as 
the pharmacists there said they're looking at the price point and the fact that you can get high for 14 hours on $10. Is that how long it goes? Yeah. Oh, my God. Oh, yeah. You know, when you talk about, and the great analogy, you have a burger. Sometimes you have that burger fix and dopamine, right? That's about a a kind of a, 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 a hit, right? That'll last for maybe, I don't know, half an hour or so. You feel good after that. The dopamine that is released when you take crystal meth is 12 to 15 times that. And unlike cocaine, where you've got maybe a high of 45 minutes, you're looking at anywhere between 10 and 14 hour high when you're on crystal meth. And the fact is, is that uh, for $10, you can get that high. For $100, you can get a whole lot of high. And that's what we're finding out in there in the field is that we're talking to people that have been on this meth high for days and in some cases a week or two. And as we roll through this series, you're going to find that it's so very difficult to treat these individuals because, you know, there are some politicians, for example, that say, well, you know, we'll just throw them into the Main Street project. We'll just put them in the drunk tank. No, that's the worst thing you can do. You need to have a safe and secure area. And there's no naloxone type of antidote here. This is just treatment. This is time. This is going through the sweats. This is, you know, having somebody somebody kind of take you through that process. And, you know, I heard Lori Lamont earlier in the hour. And, you know, she's paid good money to do what she's doing. But you talk to healthcare professionals inside the system. And depending on the night... They're scrambling to put these patients somewhere and to guard them and to let them dry out in some ways. And in one case, out at Seven Oaks, people will feel a little bit better and they'll just get up and leave. And they'll go and in that neighborhood, they'll start looking, where can where can I get some money? And boom, they go to the business that's open and rob it as much as possible. Or, and in some cases, we've seen these drive-bys where they're just looking for money. And they're already looking for that fix. They're so, so focused on getting money for that next fix. So we're seeing this in so many areas. And I'm not just talking geographically. I'm talking, we've had the conversation about the liquor stores. We're talking about bike theft. We're talking about the random acts of violence on people walking down the street. We're talking about and have explored the idea of leaving your door unlocked on your car or not leaving it unlocked. It doesn't seem to matter. And... To tie it back to the pharmacy, Richard, if you've ever wondered why you've got to go and get someone or there's a, a, a magical dinging bell when you want to buy razor blades, that's this why, is why. That's why. That's part of it. And and I think that – and I think I used the analogy yesterday about the stolen car situation a decade ago. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there were people saying, ah, you know what? It doesn't affect me. It's in the north end. It's in the core area. Mm-hmm. No big deal. And then – People in River Heights and the Maples and Fort Richmond started getting their vehicles stolen. And the thing is, is that as we go through this in the months ahead, that's what's going to happen. All the intelligence that police are telling us about is that this is going to spread. It already has in some cases. And if you're a business, do you want to come on 680 CJOB and Global News and say, yes, I've been robbed. Right. 
And it's a reasonable expectation of safety that you would have in many of those businesses. I mean, you could talk about the pharmacy having the drugs and therefore they're open more to a robbery. But are we talking now, you know, you go into a grocery store and not even just the staff have to be worried about what kind of shoplifting they might see, but you're worried about safety. I mean, where does it extend to? Well, the other customers in in the building as well, right? Because when I hear these discussions about people, oh, security guards should be restraining and holding down these individuals who are stealing bottles of Crown Royal. Hey, that's all well and good, but when that goes bad, it's not just a security or staff involved. There are other customers in the building, and that has to be taken account for. Understood, but I also know that there's something about rule of law and respect for others. And as soon as you just basically go hands up and say, you know what, not my problem, you walk out of the store, that tells me that the criminals are ruling the day as opposed to the good citizens of this city and this province. That's the problem I have with that attitude. Except for you're talking about a drug that's so extreme that people are carrying weapons. We're hearing more about that from different situations. We're, talk, we're talking about that psychosis where they, they're hearing voices and they're paranoid. Understood, but so every, now, every yeah, situation but, is unique, I think. And I just don't I don't like the blanket policies. I'm not saying put your hands up. I'm, I'm talking about what, what this does for that general fear, Richard, where people are going to, we, they hear all this information and they think, am I really going to confront someone who may even or may not professionals, be high on meth? Even those that are trained EMS professionals are calling the cops. The cops are calling other cops for backup. And so this is out of the ordinary. And this is why we're attaching the word crisis to this situation, because it's beyond anything we've ever seen in our community. And that's why we're talking about it as extensively as we are, because there are parts of this story that we're not, we're not aware of yet. And what's happening now is people are starting to contact us. Uh, They're starting to say, tell our story as well. Tell the story of Manitoba Hydro. Tell the story of the various drugstores. Tell the story of the retailers. Tell the story of the garage break-ins. Tell the story that 911 is overwhelmed at times and you've got the professionals having to choose which calls to go to first. One more question that I'm curious about. You say that there's no antidote, there's no quick fix, it's just got to sweat it out. Mm -hmm. So once that period has passed, how long does it take for somebody to break their addiction? It's unique to each and every person. And I think part of this is that, yes, we have a municipal election campaign going on, and you're going to hear the candidates weigh in. And I think they're sincere about wanting to do something about it. It takes resources at the front end dealing on the police side, but really it's the province. And we've had some promises made, but we're not just talking about, well, we're in favor of the Bruce Oak Recovery Center. No, it's going to take a whole lot of resources uh, in a lot of neighborhoods. And you can't just ship this problem outside the city of Winnipeg. You have to deal with it here at home. And with the, with the, to, to, Piggyback on your auto theft analogy, Richard, there's no immobilizer that we can all install in our vehicles or our homes or in our businesses, and there's no club to put on the steering wheel. Uh, we can we can protect ourselves only to, to, to a certain extent. Inspector Ian Waddell, who's in charge of the organized crime unit at the Winnipeg Police Service, says we can't police our way out of this. It's the Mexican cartels that are in charge of this. And if you think that we can get a handle on this international organized crime, it is very, very difficult. The RCMP has made conscious efforts since all the terrorist activities to go after that. And not to say that they're not going, over the, going after the organized criminals, 
But um, there's choices that have been made in law enforcement in this country. And uh, we focus in on acts of terror as far as intelligence is concerned. The RCMP has not spent the money that is needed on intelligence in this country. Well, in the next hour at uh, 837, we're going to go to Brandon and talk to the Brandon chief of police there about the problem in that community and some of the solutions that members of the Bear Clan and a mom of an addict have. And it's a it's a big it's not one easy solution, Richard. So thank you. Richard Cloutier joining us live in studio. Richard is co-host of The News, which runs 4 to 7 on 680 CJOB Monday through Friday alongside Julie Buckingham. Mackley McGarry McNabb on 680 CJOB. Greg, I really like the jacket you're wearing. Thank you, sir. But the guest we have in studio <laughs> now, I, I think, has a nicer jacket. Milt Stiegel is here. <laughs> Mr. Stiegel, welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It, this is not a bad jacket. It's kind of bland, though. There might be only one room today where I'm not the best-dressed individual, <laughs> and you had to come and ruin that for I mean, me, we'll, we'll my Yankees hat, too. That ah, tops that it off. That threw me off as that well. That tops it off. Always great to see you, though. No, always great to be back. Always. Yeah, I heard you. You giving him a hard time about the Yankees? Not hat. a hard time. I was just was surprised. I figured you'd go like with the for a classy team like the Cubs wow. or or, or wow. something like that. I like winners. I like winners. Oh, like Greg's been very sad this it's morning. It's been a tough yeah. couple of days, quite frankly. It, it's unbelievable that you play 162 games and then you you know you have one game to decide if you're going to continue on. So we were talking about yeah. that earlier. It should be a three game playoff. Yeah, I know. I know. Well, what can you do? So the HSC Millionaire Lottery uh, is well underway, and uh, we were at, at the launch, Greg, you and I, and Loren, you were there too, co-hosted by you, Milt Stiegel, and uh, that's a pretty impressive home. We saw you there this morning on Global right. News Morning. Right, yeah, no, it, it, it's, it's a special place, you know, uh, hopefully everyone goes out and support it, of course, majority of the people aren't going to win prizes, but like I've been saying, I've been, you know, it's been redundant, everyone's going to win uh, because you're helping out the Health Science Center, and the Health Science Center helps out individuals, you know, all of us, directly or indirectly, will be affected by someone who goes to the Health Science Center, so hopefully when everyone goes out and, and buy a lottery ticket, you know, if you have some spare money, whatever, you know, go out and buy a lottery ticket because it's helping out a lot of individuals it's not like you just live down the block like you live <laughs> a fair distance away from winnipeg milt steagle and the fact that you keep coming back to winnipeg lending your voice your your pretty face to this cause uh says a lot about your time here well, why do you continue to do this i know i ask you this every single time right, right. but i think it's an important message well it, it started you know what i saw my parents what i saw my parents doing especially my father my father uh, was born into poverty, 11 brothers and sisters, didn't have much, but he was able to work his way up, uh, provided a lot for myself and my brothers and sisters and my mother. And I saw the way he gave back. I just remember my father, if he had a penny, uh, he would give a, a million dollars. He would help out hitchhikers. He would help out homeless people. And he instilled in me and my brothers that if you have a chance, if you have a platform to help out, help out. So that's my passion about giving back and giving back to a place that done so much for me and my family. I mean, that's the least I can do. And the fact that I'm helping out individuals who, uh, you know, are, are down, not down on their luck, but need some help. When you see little kids, little babies, I mean, that's that's something I can't deny. So anytime I can help out, I'll try to do my best. Plus, when you buy into the lottery ticket, you get to play that fun game. First of all, you're giving to a great cause, but then you get to have that conversation at a home. How am I going to take the house? 
I'm right. going to take the. I'm going to take the money. One point one million dollars. Am I going to take the car? <laughs> so, what's your answer to that? Or does that change depending on on the day? Would it be house, car? Oh, it's the money. It's the money. It's, my wife likes to shop, so if I had an opportunity <laughs> in Canada, it's untaxed. That is unbelievable. One point one million dollars untaxed. So that's pretty cool. So, like I said, you know, just go out and buy some lottery tickets. You have a chance of winning, but regardless, you're always going to win. Now, just keep in mind, though, I was thinking about this this morning. How do you phrase this? Because there's only so many ways that you can frame the conversation around these lotteries, because I think they're a win-win situation. You're helping out. You also get to dream about what if. But also keep in mind, even if you had that $1.1 million and you didn't have your health, you'd have nothing. It means nothing. It means nothing, and and that's a great point. You know, if you don't have your health, you can be the richest person in the world. You can be the prettiest person in the world. It means nothing if you don't have your health. So that's the most important thing. Uh, when you see individuals who are, regardless of age, that need some help, and the Health Science Center is able to provide uh, a lot of technology that most hospitals can't provide. So, but it takes money to continue uh, to upgrading their facilities, upgrading their uh, machines, or whatever. So we have to keep. Providing that money for these for the health science center. I just want I want to quote my Grammy because she used to say, "Good, better, best. Never let it rest till the good get better and the better best." And so that's what we're talking about is making better health care best, good health care better by giving uh, not only money for research to to figure out how these diseases happen in the first mm-hmm. place, but better technology that might be on the shopping list, but maybe HSC can't afford to buy it until 2025 or 2022. Lottery funds come in and they can bump up those exactly. priorities. Exactly. That, and that's a great way to put it. You know, it, it, it costs money to do this research, to go out and, and figure out, you know, what's the best machines for getting these individuals healthy as fast as possible. It's it's, it's not free, uh, but we, if we all come together, you know, those pennies, those Dollars. You, you don't think it's much, but when you have thousands of people giving pennies and giving dollars, it adds up to a lot. So whatever you can give, however many tickets you can buy, hopefully everyone goes out and do their part. Milt Stiegel is here, HSC Millionaire 2018 Lottery. The website is hscmillionaire.com. And Milt, you, you mentioned that it's kind of mind-blowing to you that it's tax-free, the $1.1 million cash option. What? How does it work in the States? You're going to at least get hit 40, 30, 40 percent at least. Uh, it all depends on if you take the lump sum up front or if you get it over years. So you're, you're going to get hit pretty hard with taxes in the states. Uh, a lot of times our lottery, it, it goes out to help, you know, the, the, the public schools or whatever. But regardless of when you win, you're going to get hit pretty hard by Uncle Sam. Now, you talk a lot about giving back and having no problem coming back to Winnipeg because this community gave so much to you. But I have noticed you check the weather forecast every once yes. in a while. So yes. we love everything about Winnipeg, but we still don't like our weather and the possible snow that's coming our way. Exactly. That's why I try to give back in the summer and in the fall. <laughs> in the winter, uh, gonna, can I give back over the phone or through Skype or something like that? <laughs> Is that if, I, if I need to, I'll come back, but hey, you know, it's difficult to give back in the winter. <laughs> One of the most unique things that maybe some people don't realize, uh, Milt, is the fact that your youngest son was actually born here in Manitoba, here in Winnipeg, so it's an interesting discussion every time you sign up for soccer or yes. register for yes. different, uh, for different activities. When, when his birth certificate is needed, you know, when they look at his birth certificate, they're, they're like, what the heck is this? We've never seen this before. So we always have a good chuckle because we have to let him know where he was born in Canada. He was born in Winnipeg, Manitoba. He's super proud of it because he's never met anyone else who was born in Winnipeg. Of course, not in his class or in any sports he plays. So he's very proud of the fact that he was born in Winnipeg, Manitoba. Does he ever wear blue bomber stuff back home? 
Uh, you know what? His favorite team. I'm not gonna be. I'm gonna oh, be. No. It's, it's oh, not the no. blue. My oldest son, he's a diehard Blue Bomber fan. But my youngest son, he likes Toronto for some reason. Oh, yeah, I know. I know. Wait, I know. He didn't say Riders. So no, I, like, I know. I, I, I don't know why. His, his CFL team is Toronto. His NFL team is the Falcons. We live in Atlanta, but my my oldest, he, he he wants to be at every home Blue Bomber game. But my youngest, he doesn't he doesn't like the Blue Bombers. I mean, he was he was only six months when he moved away. So. Yeah, I know. It's, it's tough. We, we've almost crushing. kicked him out of the house a couple of times. But. Well, you know what? I tell him I don't feel so bad for taking away his hockey team now. You, you tell him that, all right? We had a hockey team in Atlanta? Who uh, <laughs> Majority of the people in Atlanta didn't even know that. Yeah, so. well, they came to a place where we love them just fine. Thank you very much. HSCMillionaire.com is the website. You can follow them on Facebook, on Twitter, at HSCMillionaire, as well as on Instagram, at HSCMillionaire. And, of course, the, the big one, the North River Heights home. It's a $1.43 million package. Comes with all kinds of goodies. Or you can take just a big wad of cash, $1.1 million. What would Randy Moss say? Take the straight cash, homie? Straight cash, homie. Straight cash, homie. And I wanted the nickels and dimes so it can't be traced. (laughs) (laughs) Milt Stiegel, thanks so much for popping in. No, thanks for having me on. big one that we've been talking about this week. Loren McNabb is meth. Yeah, and we've been talking about meth in Winnipeg a lot, but we know that crime trends in other communities can often follow the big cities. And as we, Winnipeg grapples with what we've been repeatedly calling a meth crisis, many smaller Manitoba cities and towns are also sounding their own alarms. Over the past few days, we've heard from different listeners, people and officials in other cities in Morden, Steinbach and Brandon talking about the problems. And a few days ago, I was in the Wheat City to speak with a member of its Bear Clan who is not only battling this problem in the streets, but in her own home. This is what we'd be looking for, eh? Lying in the grass next to a fence in downtown Brandon. Scattered in the back alley. You can see there's the, uh, the, what they would cook their meth in. And up along the edge of a busy lot are signs of a problem Kim Longstreet says Manitobans can no longer ignore. Frankly, it doesn't matter where you go in the community, you're going to find uh, people are using. Longstreet is with Brandon's Bear Clan. So we might have Pacific, Rosser and Princess, but basically we cover the downtown. Two nights per week, they're out talking to some of that city's more vulnerable, handing out water, care kits and working to safely recover and dispose of dirty needles. In my one-hour tour, they weren't hard to find. We've actually picked needles out of dumpsters. Um, we, we didn't do that uh, in the beginning, but then we started realizing that people were actually taking the needles out of dumpter, dumpsters and using them. In the Bear Clan's first six months of operation in 2017, they pulled about 30 from Brandon streets. So far this year, well over 400, a 1,200% increase. All they're doing is looking for their next meth and they're out you know, finding ways and means of doing that. Either they're prostituting themselves or they're stealing or whatever it takes to get the meth. It's one clue to a mounting meth crisis in western Manitoba. But in this city of almost 50,000 people, Longstreet says it's not the only one. Uh, A giveaway could be that they're carrying uh, a bar, something heavy with them. Uh, They could be wearing a heavy chain with a lock around their neck. And why would they? Well, that's a weapon. 
that and, and their fear the the psychosis of people who are on meth is get them before they get you so if you're looking at them in some odd way they may be hearing that you're hurt you're there to hurt them so they're going to hurt you before you hurt them and it's not them doing it it's the psychosis arming uh, themselves in anticipation of that high a complete shift in personality and behavior that Longstreet knows as both a Bear Clan member and a mom. Four years ago, she discovered her son was addicted to meth, an athlete, a university student, and then an adult with a terrifying problem. The very thought of himself ever doing something to his body like that was so foreign to him. He worked out, he ate well, he did all the right things, and uh, to have to succumb to I like injecting yourself with a chemical that is going to kill you is is even still foreign to both of us to think about. She's watched him repeatedly struggle and then after 28 days of treatment or detox slip back into the shadows of meth again. It's meth. Meth cannot be cured and helped in 21 days or 28 days. Meth is a uh, monster that needs specialized treatment. Uh, I've been advocating for that a lot. So when we talk about those long-term treatment facilities, this is what we mean. Yeah, long-term, like a a year. What do you say to the Manitobans and people in Brandon or Winnipeg or any small town that are like, that's that's not our problem. You know, there's there's a handful of drug users and people are making bad choices and it's not affecting me, so I don't care. Like, I don't want my tax dollars fixing some junkie's problem. Yeah, so when I th- when I hear those comments, I just think to myself, you know, it's not your problem until you happen to look across the street at somebody who may be high on meth. They run across the street at you and hurt you or harm somebody you love. Now it's your problem. So it is our problem. It's everybody's problem. There's a, a lot of startling things that she had to say there. First, like she, she talked about every time she sees a needle, she pictures her son maybe being the one who used it and then tossing it on the ground or picking up a dirty needle and using it again and all the, the health risks that can come with that. She talks about the phone call. She's worried about getting one of these days about him dying. And then she talks about how she, they've sounded the alarm months ago. They've had ministers with the former health minister who was Kelvin Gertzen at the time. They've talked about these long-term treatment facilities. And that the line about the idea that people are arming themselves, like pre-arming themselves before they get high because they know when they're high, they're going to have this crazy paranoia and they'll, they'll, they might want to hurt someone in, in theory to defend themselves. It's just, it blows my mind when she mentioned that. The the. the- the dichotomy here, when you hear about the desperation of people actually going in a du- dumpster chasing after a used needle because you're so desperate for this, and then when you hear this mom talking about her son who was an athlete, who was a university student, and 28 days of detox and slipping back, and this is what I continuously hear with pe- from people that I'm speaking to about this, uh, Brett, Loren, is how addictive it is and how... We've had a number of text messages this morning. These are criminals, plain and simple, that are using illegal drugs. Well, you know what? You can have that attitude if you want, but that's not going to fix a damn thing. This is a long-term problem. The cure, if there is one, is long-term. It's going to require massive investment. And when you think about the resources, the strain on mental health resources in the first place and to imagine that meth creates this, this drug-induced psychosis, 
It's just this is just mounting, piling on top of already a, a healthcare system, a wellness system that's strained to the max to begin with. Yeah, the addiction thing is really scary because I mean a lot of people don't get addicted to things they've tried. I know people who have done cocaine. And could do it socially, no problem. They'd Dabble. Do, yeah, they would do it on the weekend or whatever, you know, they were partying and that would be that. Uh, I'm. This is one of the reasons why I have always stayed away from narcotics, even marijuana. Just the idea of trying that kind of scares me because of my history with smoking cigarettes. I just don't want to find myself liking another substance that I may want. And I, I realize... You know, people might say marijuana isn't addictive, whatever. I just would like to stay away from that. And I've had the opportunity to try things like cocaine. I've never been exposed to, like, the the hard stuff like heroin or meth. But uh, if in the, the, the chance that it did pop up, if I were at a party or something and somebody had it, no way would I try that because I know I would be one of these people who is struggling with that because when you you said 28 days of detox and then going back to it, yeah, I would be that person. Well, she's talked about she's even had to, you know, whether it's been trying through a hospital or a facility or, or what have you, she's deto- helped him detox in his own home. And right now he's doing really well with that and, and he's doing okay, but it's every single day is a struggle. And in Brandon, we also not just talked to Kim, we I talked to the police of, or chief of police there. And so just on the numbers level, uh, two years ago they had about uh, 15 meth seizures. Last year, they seized, they had 55 meth seizures. This year, they're on pace uh, to potentially hit 55 again. They've had 39 meth seizures, so that those numbers are just sort of growing or at least staying the same. And when you talk about the high, the Brandon's chief of police, Wayne Balkin, says the issue is that it not only lasts incredibly long, it can render anyone who takes it, you know, essentially useless. Like, they cannot function. They can't work. They can't hold jobs. And these are often people who had jobs. It's, you know, we talk about it being homeless or people who don't, you know, have, don't work. No, often it's people who had jobs, they went to school, and then they get high on this drug and they start stealing. Problem uh, that arises is uh, people can't function when they're, when they're on methamphetamines and, and work and be employed. So a lot of the thefts are happening because of this. And um, this is a bike, if it's worth $500, may sell for $20 and enough to get uh, get them through the day on their high. Uh, we're seeing an increase in our our general thefts and possession of property and, and theft over as well as our break and enters and, and specifically to uh, some of our garages and sheds and outbuildings. Um, people look for the easy targets and a way to get uh, uh, articles with, that they can resell. So Brandon's actually uh, in, in to fight back against this, if you will. They've hired a drug investigator and a youth intelligence officer. So there's two extra people working there now just to strictly deal with the math problem. And one another thing they're worried about there, which we know they're here in Winnipeg, is the, the impact on young adults and teens not only becoming addicted to math, but Wayne Balkin, the chief of Brandon's Police Service, says that also leaves those kids or, or young adults vulnerable to exploitation and potentially the sex trade. Well, the exploited youth uh, often get brought in uh, through the use of drugs, and uh, then they're used to work either out on the street or with clients uh, doing uh, trafficking of themselves, and uh, the repayment is uh, in drugs. So you can you could not care that someone's choosing to get high, but then the the route that people are going, young people, young uh, Kim Longstreet, the Brandon Bear Clan person we spoke to in the earlier story, it said that they're young, like they're really really young. And um, as a mom, she said, you know, you just stop. She thinks about her own son, but then just the whole 
lengths people are going to to keep this high going in their life is incredible. Mackling McGarry McNabb on 680 CJOB. And Matricky from Calia Flowers is here. And the headline in the Winnipeg Free Press yesterday, Growing an Online Empire. Calia Flowers on verge of cracking a million dollars in sales after just two years. Pardon me, I had it out that it was three years. Two years, that's even crazier, Catherine. Welcome and congratulations. Thank you. It's been a wild ride. So... Calia Flowers, for those who don't know. And Lorraine, have you ever met Catherine? No, I hadn't met Catherine, and I actually hadn't heard about this until you guys pointed it out yesterday and talked about how you've had this sort of ongoing conversation about her business and all the rest. So first time meeting, and also I need to hear a little bit more about what it is. So what is Calia Flowers? So Calia is the new best way to send flowers in Winnipeg. Um, We do things differently than a traditional florist. So all online ordering, caliaflowers.com, takes you five clicks to order. We only do three bouquets at a time based on what's in season, and then we rotate them out every couple weeks. Um, And we deliver them in these super sexy blue boxes, which people really like. And I think last time I was here, you talked about it being like a bazooka box. I don't know how I feel about that, but it's pretty special. People love love it for them. And all our bouquets are only $49, so it's really great value um, for sending flowers to someone special. And sorry for likening it to a bazooka, I just, I because the box reminded me of that scene in Terminator 2 where <laughs> Schwarzenegger's walking down the hall, he's got the, the box of flowers, and then he sort of opens the box and tosses the flowers and pulls out a shotgun. Uh, but so, yeah, yeah, I'm, tra- I'm, we're going go- I'm Googling this now. <laughs> no, Brett, this is just a, this is how flowers should come. This is beautiful. I was thinking more of a Tiffany-type box. That's the kind of color almost, too. Yeah, people say Tiffany box, Apple box. We got that a lot. Not bazooka box. Exactly. <laughs> oh, hey, okay. I like action movies, okay? So that's where... <laughs> I do like flowers, though. Um, and I understand that you just launched in... Well, how many... Okay, what markets are you in as of this morning? Oh, as of this morning. That's a big question. So we started in Winnipeg two years ago. We added... Sas- or Sorry, we added... Oh, I'm already getting ahead of myself. We added Kelowna. I'm already getting ahead of myself again. We added Edmonton, Calgary, and Vancouver. And then this morning, we're really excited to launch uh, in Regina and in Saskatoon. Wow. Um, and in Kelowna next week as well, which I think you guys are breaking the story on. So it's exciting. Ooh. So that's in now how many markets? I, I got lost along the way Seven there. Seven all so. together. But we also do rural Manitoba. So it depends how you count. We're now in Brandon, Winkler, Morden, all the way south to the, to the uh, border. Well, the first time I ordered flowers from you, I think it was your mom that picked up the phone. And so that's just an example of how far you've come in two years. And that was just probably about a year and a half ago. I don't know if it was for Mother's Day or what the occasion was. And and you are so good on the social media. And once you become part of the Calia family, you really do a great job of keeping people up to date and reminding everybody that might need reminding of special (laughs) occasions that are coming up. And the idea that, hey, it's not too late today, even like you send out those reminders and um, I don't mind it at all. I have to tell you. Well, we appreciate that. Yeah, we work to, to make it easier for people to send moments. We take same day orders all the way up until 1230 every day. So it's a nice way to send a oops, I sort of forgot, but you can pretend that you didn't. So how many people <laughs> wait, wait, do we employ? Sec, Sorry, go ahead. Hold on. Did, she, did, did you hear what she said? Oops, I kind of forgot. Send, send, no, no, no. Send moments. I caught that too. 
Send moments. Expand on that. Like language is important these days, yeah, especially the, when you're disrupting a, 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 a certain uh, part of the economy. From the very beginning, we've talked about moments because we were really fortunate to be part of people's emotional connections. When you send flowers, you're sort of sending the flowers, but you're really sending some sort of sentiment that you really care about the person on the other end. Um, and we don't take that lightly. And so we have a 100% happiness guarantee. And we go above and beyond to guarantee that you get that moment there in a way that matters. Because it's not like you're shipping a pizza or a pair of shoes or whatever else. You're sending something that's really important. Um, and so we've been really fortunate to be part of those moments. We talk a lot about this Calia moment. It's not just flowers. It's not just a box. It's that emotional experience. It's important because I've received flowers before mm-hmm. and you try not to be rude about it, but you get you can get the patent, and not from you guys, but you can get the flowers uh, for what, I think it was for the birth of my second son. And I, they came and I thought, oh my God, I hope they didn't spend any money on this because this is... A, it reminded me of a funeral. It was sad looking. It looked like it had been spray painted. And then, and then I almost you almost wanted to reach out to the person and say, I don't want to be ungrateful, but just in case you spent like $95 on this bouquet, you should know that you should never spend $95 on this bouquet again. So it is very much about getting a great bouquet of flowers. But then if you're disappointed in what you get or you feel like you didn't get treated properly, that that takes away everything if it wasn't well done. And we hear from a lot of people that they're they're scared to order flowers online because they've had an experience where they were embarrassed. That's a word I hear a lot. I ordered flowers online from some national conglomerate and I was embarrassed when they arrived because it was nothing like the picture. Um, and we promise uh, to over-deliver on what we give you as an expectation. And I think we, we hold that true quite frequently. Um, I had a call from our Google rep last week because um, we do a lot of work with Google and reviews and that kind of stuff. Um, and he said to me, Catherine, I, I want to be honest with you, I've never seen reviews like this in a company. And I said, like, what do you mean? He said, I've never seen this many five-star reviews. And he asked me if I was paying people to write these reviews, which we're not, I promise. Um, But we've been really fortunate to be able to provide those experiences with a really high quality um, so that you get that amazing experience every time. So you're on the verge of cracking a million dollars in annual sales. And uh, when do you think you'll make that? It should be soon. It's uh, we, we continue to grow. We're thrilled with the growth that we have. And now adding three new cities for us, Regina, Saskatoon, and Kelowna, will help us achieve that even further. So, Catherine, uh, Brett and I are familiar with your story, and some of our listeners will be, because we kind of feel uh, rightfully or wrongfully that we've been <laughs> along for the ride pretty you much since been. the beginning. And I so, think they actually said yesterday, it's our Catherine. <laughs> we did. Right? Like, there's, there's we our did. girl. Yeah. There's our Catherine. And so we're, A, so proud of you uh, for what you've accomplished. But just remind us how this all started and the whole uh, the way you went about accelerating your growth, because I, I think what we want to celebrate as well is the community, the entrepreneur and the young people in Winnipeg that are believing in our community again. It's very important to us and I know it's important to you. It is. So two years ago or three, maybe three years ago, I moved back to Winnipeg from Toronto. I'm a Winnipegger born and raised. Um, and I was working at a full-time job and looking for something different. And one of my best friends got promoted and I wanted to send her flowers and there wasn't a good way to do it. So it was call a florist and spend a bunch of money for who knows what, um, or buy something at Safeway that wasn't necessarily in the best condition and deliver it myself. And that was kind of my light bulb moment. Now, at the beginning, and you guys remember, it was just an idea on the side, like maybe this might be something. And I got a lot of encouragement from Innovate Manitoba, um, from the Manitoba Technology Accelerator, whom with we still work, um, the same accelerator that produced Skip the Dishes. Um, we recently Shout out to Marshall Ring. <laughs> totally. <laughs> um, we raised a round of angel financing and angel investment last summer from a, a number of uh, prominent investors in the community, which allowed us to expand kind of this past year. And we actually just partnered with BDC for the next round of investment. Um, 
um, which has enabled this round of expansion. Um, so when you talk about the community, I can't be grateful enough for the strength of the people that have supported us and also for the strength of our team. Um, we have a phenomenal team, particularly our head office team here, um, who go above and beyond to make this company what it is. And I'm so grateful for all of that support. Well, Jobs is giving back to a community, right? Mm-hmm. So in your team, you have how many? You know, it really fluctuates. I, I, I would love to give you a number, but it depends. We work with a lot of contract people. We have some full time in our head office. And then because we're so seasonal, as we get into the holiday season and then into Valentine's Day, into Mother's Day, it really contracts so and expands. So we kind of go back and forth. <laughs> so how many people are on your team? I can't give you a good number. So we've got okay. seven in our head office and then we've got a number across the different regions. And what I, I guess yeah. what I was wanted to ask there is when you first started this, like you talk mm-hmm. about a head office, were, were you ever find yourself in a situation where your head was spinning? Often, every day, this morning. <laughs> um, it's. I mean, that's the, the world of startup, right? Everybody's working two jobs or three jobs or four jobs because you just don't have capacity yet. Like we probably could have 30 people in head office and everybody would still be running full tilt. You know, you talked earlier and you joked about my mom being on the phone. My mom actually still answers the phones every <laughs> Wednesday afternoon. So Fabulous. if you call today, shout out, mom, I love you. Um, <laughs> at 1 p.m., you will get Barb on the phone. And, and the, that's the way that we have this Community is still supporting us. Oh, Poor yeah. Barb's getting some phone calls oh, yeah. today. Yeah. And it was, oh, hi, Greg. <laughs> and it was, wow, this is fantastic. And so um, another thing that you're saying, and it's just rolling off your tongue now, is head office. Like, come on, seriously, 36 months ago, were you thinking in prospects of where, you know, uh, you would be listing on your website and or your business card, head office Winnipeg, and then that long train of other locations where you're operating Yeah, you know, we've been so fortunate. It has exceeded all of my expectations in terms of the traction that we've had. But I come back to the strength of the product that we have and and our ability to listen to customers and continue to innovate. You know, our customers wanted larger size bouquets, so we added larger size bouquets. They wanted bridal bouquets. We added bridal bouquets. They wanted new cities. We've been able to add new cities. And so I I think the the strength of the business has been our ability to pivot and move quickly, which is a startup thing, um, to be able to meet that demand. Just before we let you go here, you mentioned bridal bouquets. Mm. Uh, weddings can be a tricky business, especially with flowers. I was scared. <laughs> so. Yeah. So we launched a wedding program in the spring, um, same concept as our regular bouquets. So you choose between one of three, no customization, I'll repeat, no customization. And that's key in a wedding, I think. It is. And so if you're looking for a simple choice, you don't want to do the back and forth, you don't want to spend two grand on your wedding flowers, our average bride spends 450 bucks. They pick from our one of three, the seasonal bouquets available at the time, and then we go from there. Um, so it's a good option for people that are looking for bridal bouquets to purchase from Calia as well. Yeah, that just the idea of planning a wedding. I, I started to go through that process, and my it, my head will, was just about to explode at the prospect of going through having to pick the flowers. No, I I like this. Well, I don't like that. No, let's just pick it. And to me, like for someone who likes to cut away the fuss, I think that's a great option. Keep and, it uh, simple. That's what Kelly is all about. Okay, where do we follow you on social media? At Calia Flowers, CaliaFlowers.com, C-A-L-L-I-A on all the platforms. Catherine Matricki, congratulations on your massive success. Good for you for doing what you've Are done. Are we allowed to clap? Oh, you guys are so to sweet. Clap? <laughs> it's banned. Are we banning clapping? No, okay. Hey, jazz hands. Jazz hands. <laughs> talk a lot on this radio station in this city about all of the festivals that happen throughout the year. 
For anybody who says there's nothing to do in Winnipeg, just look around. There's always something going on. There's always some kind of a festival, especially in the summer, but now increasingly in winter as well. And Greg, this is pretty exciting stuff uh, coming from the International Festivals and Events Association. Yeah, the IFEA is the premier association supporting and enabling festival and event professionals worldwide. This association offers the most complete source of ideas, resources, information, education, and networking for festival and event professionals worldwide. Their website celebrates a variety of different locations and the awards that have been won over the years, including just the second time for a Canadian city, Winnipeg, who just won an award at their gathering in San Diego. And we're joined now on 680 CJOB by Dana Spiring, President and CEO, Economic Development Winnipeg. Dana, good morning to you. Good morning, guys. So Winnipeg designated by the IFEA as a world festival and event city, only the second ever Canadian city in the organization's history. This must be pretty exciting for your organization. You know what? It's incredibly exciting for our organization. We've known about this award for a, a long period of time. And it's really over the last couple of years when we've seen the strength of all of our festivals and events that, that we decided to throw our name in the hat. And, you know, it was a, it was a very long process to put together really a catalog of, of all the things that happen in Winnipeg and all the volunteers and all the staff and all the different organizations that go into making our city such a great festival and event city. And, and the fact that we were named, uh, you know, a world-class festival and event city and, and only the second city in Canada to be named that, you know, is, is a pretty big feather in our cap, and it's definitely something that we're celebrating today. It's an award. It's, an, a title, it's a title. But what does it mean? So if you take that outside of Winnipeg, is that used as a selling point or a feature that would become part of, a hey, another reason to be attracted or come to us is yeah. because of this designation? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, when we're going to, to promote Winnipeg as a festival, you know, if we're promoting Winnipeg festivals or various events that we're having, the fact that a third party has designated us world-class you know, carries a lot of weight. And it's, it's one of the, the many tools in our toolbox that we're going to use to try to attract visitors to Winnipeg and make sure that they get to experience, you know, all that we have to offer. So we're, we're so proud that, uh, that we were named this world-class city. And, and we really do think it'll be a tool for us to attract more and more visitors to our festivals and events. Dana, I am typically skeptical with awards like this because sometimes there are communities that get together and they create these organizations. And then when you look at the cities that have been honored in the past, it, it, it kind of it defeats almost the purpose of creating and, and having this award in the first place. Not so with this organization. You join an incredibly prestigious list of communities worldwide who are uh, who have been bestowed this honor. Yeah, absolutely. And, and the other thing to remember is this is not one event. So we don't have, you know, Central Park in New York and we're going to have one concert a year and therefore you're designated world class. The reason that we got this award is, is because of the number of organizations that step up every year to create these festivals and events. You know, they're on year-round. So, you know, Winnipeg is sometimes known for winter, and guess what? We're going to celebrate that, and we're going to tell people to come to Festival de Voyager. You know, we've got events for kids. We've got Folklorama, where you can travel the globe in two weeks in Winnipeg. You know, we've got Manitowabi, where we're celebrating First Nations cultures, and, you know, it goes on and on and on. So every, there's something for 
everybody. And the fact that we have this community that stands up and says, hey, you know, we're going to put on an event almost every weekend and we're going to have volunteers and we're going to get behind it and the city gets behind it. You know, that's why we won. And, and, and that's to us is something that we're really, really proud of. Have we added them all up in terms of how many festivals and events we put on? Is that part of the process? I, I mean, I know it changes every year, but... Yeah, it was part of the process. And, and one of the things that we had to do is really catalog all of the events that happen in our city. And, and some people looked at me thinking, you know, what are you asking us to do? It's a bit of a make-work project. But it's really important that, that our staff at Tourism Winnipeg understand the breadth of the events that happen in Winnipeg. So we spent months cataloging all of the events that take place. We, we talked to the organizing committees. We looked at the number of volunteers we had. And, and we realized when we started to put that package together that, uh, that it's, it's a pretty stellar story. So that the package and the application that we put out is available on our website. It's there for anyone to see. Uh, it highlights all the different events. And it's, you know, it's something that, that Winnipeg should be proud of just to pop on there and, and skim through the you know the beautiful pictures whether it's the whiteouts or the comedy festival and uh, and look at the breadth of activities that we have in our city no one can tell me they're bored here i can tell you that you mentioned the whiteout parties did those particular parties uh, have anything to do with uh, securing this award well, you know, we, we highlighted the whiteout parties, and, and you guys would know those are pretty near and dear to my heart, and it was, uh, you know, how I spent my springtime. So uh, those did make uh, the, the, a few great pictures and a great uh, pages of our application. So, you know, I think, I think the world took notice when we hosted those parties, and I, I think it really created an impression of Winnipeg as, as a cosmopolitan and exciting, energetic city. So, so we use that to our advantage, and, and we'll continue to do that when we're trying to attract visitors to Winnipeg on the world stage. Dana, we had the conversation about, oh, three weeks ago, someone put uh, jokingly that, that Garbage Hill sign up on Westview <laughs> Park. And, and so there's a discussion about whether or not we should have a sign like that, celebrate it. And, and uh, there's some people that made, it look, made us look a little bit backwards. And, and I don't know where you stand on that, but I think you'd agree with me on this. I don't apologize uh, for Winnipeg anymore. I don't really care what anybody else thinks about Winnipeg in a broad sense. I know yeah. we need to, but I think the apology, the time for apologizing uh, for Winnipeg on behalf of Winnipeg to those that don't understand us, I, I think it's over, is it not? Oh, I, I totally agree with you. I, I think if you look at where we've come in the past decade, the momentum has shifted, right? We are now a world-class city. And yesterday, you know, you speak of signs. We did our press release and, and our press announcement right in front of the Winnipeg sign. And you remember that wasn't there two years ago. So we, we're, we've got this momentum building, whether it's the Jets or whether it's Investors Group Field or the, the investments we're making in the Manitoba Museum, Assiniboine Park, you know, the airport. We are becoming a world-class city every day. And, you know, sometimes Winnipeggers are their worst enemies, right? We're, we're a little slow to toot our own horn. And, you know, that's the biggest part of my job is, is to go in and be the cheerleader and tell everybody how great this city is and all the great things that are going on. And, you know, the fact that an international organization recognized us as being world-class, well, we'll take that and, and we'll sell that too. And, and you know, we'll, it just gives us more fuel to keep going. It's interesting because I think people assume that the festivals start here at home, but it can mean things like, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, but it can mean things like the Lantern Festival wanting to come to Winnipeg or the Ice Sculpture Festival or yeah. all the rest. And so it's not just about people growing those ideas here, but importing them from elsewhere. Absolutely. And, and all of those are businesses, right? So when we're looking, you know, we had Cavalia here. We're, we're trying to secure Cirque du Soleil to come back, although I know they're here this week, but we're trying to secure them to be in a tent at some point going forward. 
But all those are businesses, right? And, and they need to know that the climate in Winnipeg is ripe to have tourists and visitors come and want to experience their events. And so when they see Winnipeggers getting behind events, whether it's the Whiteout or the Children's Festival or the Folk Festival, you know, that gives them that confidence that this is a great place to, to invest in and it's a great place to try to attract tourists to and, and, and it's some place where they can be successful. So, you know, that's the broader economic development lens that we work with every day as well. And, and you know, this is, this is great, uh, great fuel for us, you know, as we continue to go down this path. You mentioned Cavalia, Dana, and Brett and I had the opportunity, along with our good friend behind the glass, Jerry, to get a behind the scenes look at Cavalia when they were. It was amazing. But you know what stuck for me was was the genuineness and the fondness for which the performers and everyone behind the scenes spoke about Winnipeg. And I think there were some people that when it came back the second time were like, Really? Are people going to buy tickets for this again? Yeah. And then they kept it standing the stay, and it was and it was a, a genuine success, not a manufactured one. And and I think we need to start getting used to that a little bit. Exactly right. And and Cavalia, just for everyone to note, their first visit in Winnipeg was the most profitable, the most successful run that Cavalia had anywhere in North America. So they, they believe it's their second home. They are so happy to come to Winnipeg. And, and that's why we got them this summer again. We were the second last city. They went to Montreal to perform after, and then they were wrapping up the show. But a lot of those performers felt like Winnipeg was a second home, and, and they were really excited to come back. So, you know, those are things that we celebrate. Those are stories that we want to tell, and, and we don't tell them enough, frankly. So, so all these are, are great, great things for Winnipeggers to know about. And, and, you know, we're continuing to go out and attract new events and, and different events and, you know, trying to get a place where Winnipeggers are excited to be a part of you know, these festivals and events, but we want to make sure from an economic development standpoint that we are bringing in tourists from across the country and across North America to come and experience what Winnipeg has to offer. Dana Spiring, President and CEO, Economic Development Winnipeg. Thank you so much for joining us this morning on CJOB. Thanks, guys. Have a great day. You too. And once again, if you're just tuning in, Winnipeg has been officially recognized by the International Festivals and Events Association as a 2018 IFEA World Festival and Event City, only the second ever Canadian city to be designated as such. Ottawa was the other one, by the way. I had to do my homework on that. No, good for you. I didn't want to be Regina or Saskatoon or something. (laughs) God forbid. Can the whole interview. Yeah, it would have been been non-starter. Yeah, Greg just would have walked out and said, that's it. (laughs) I'm out. The Start On Demand is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and anywhere you find your favorite podcasts.